This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wongal people and the Yagara Turrbal peoples. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Strap in. Buckle up. It's story time, folks. This is Australiana Rama. Just a quick warning for this episode, we do talk about an historical aircraft disaster in the 40s and there is loss of life and a little bit of graphic detail. Nothing too intense, but there is a little bit of detail. All right. Hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's good to have you here in the studio today. Mm. Um, How are you? Oh, yes, I'm good. Um, My studio, again, is I'm sitting on the floor today, just, you know, and I've got Maddie's on FaceTime propped up against some clean washing on my chair, um, which I will put away. So that's that's where I'm at. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because you have guests staying in your actual studio. So Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. exciting times for everybody. Very much Um, so. Just a little little bit of insight into the personal lives of your hosts today. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I've gone for um, bizarre radio presenter this morning. I well, think I think because I did vibe. it, and then oh. you went you went with me. Okay. Um, I yes anded you. Yeah, I think I use a similar voice sometimes talking to like children that I don't know. Like I'm mm. quite formal. Like because mm. yesterday I went for dinner and there was a like. Obviously, the people that were sitting there before us had a, a kid, and like the kid was just kind of still there, and we didn't want to like trap him near the window. And I was like, <laughs> "Hello, sir. Which way do you want to come out?" And then he picked the way around the chair, and I was like, "What is this? What is this voice I'm doing?" And what it is, is my radio voice? one. Yeah, yeah. I think evening, it's your madam. like, mm-hmm. "I'm not a threat." Yeah, voice. it's like I'm going to approach you calmly, but not be too familiar. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> And address you Good by evening, your, your formal baby. title. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Good morrow, young one. Yeah. I also just Ooh, think okay, it's funny. Weird. I think it's funny to call yeah. a baby sir or madam. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Anyway, anyway, that's we do not have relevant. an episode today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have written a script, but let's throw it out the window. Great. Oh, that's a literal spaceship. <laughs> I think it'll be fine. If you can hear any background sounds, Maddie is in space and just accept it. I am. Um, mm. A bit of personal <laughs> news <laughs> from me. Um, it's not construction. It's not the rain. It is space travel. I live on the moon. Mm. Okay. Speaking of flight. <laughs> okay. We're going to talk about a crash. Uh, oh, no. Yep. Yeah. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm ready. Let's go. Australia in 1940. Wow. Right? Okay. Robert Menzies is Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. The Story Bridge opens in Brisbane. Oh, congratulations. Double, yeah, thank you. Double-decker buses replace the last cable trams in Melbourne. Ah, oh, and then they bring them back. To be later replaced by yeah. trams. <laughs> and Australia is at war in Europe um, mm. as well as other places as part of World War II um, because the war is well and truly underway after kicking off the year 
before officially. Mm-hmm. So, 13th of August, 1940. It is a sunny day, perfect for flying, according to the records. Mm-hmm. Um, a pilot, Bob Hitchcock, mm-hmm. yep, mm-hmm. that's a 1940s mm-hmm. name, Absolutely. had already made one safe landing that morning. Um, We've got two was... Bobs so far, Menzies and Hitchcock. Yeah, Bob, Bob, yeah. Mm. Um, he was an experienced Royal Australian Air Force officer. He, his official title was Flight Lieutenant Robert Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. So he'd come in at Melbourne's Essendon Airport to pick up some VIPs to mm-hmm. take them to Canberra. Okay. And they are on this flight on the way to Canberra on this sunny day. The passengers, the VIPs, are... Jeffrey Austin Street, who was the Minister for the Army and Repatriation, mm-hmm. which was obviously a very, very significant minister at that time. James Valentine, who was the Minister for Air and Civil Aviation. Henry Summer Gullett, who was Vice President of the Executive Council and Minister in Charge of Scientific and Industrial Research. He's definitely come up before. I remember the word name Gullet. I was like, what? Yes, yeah. yes. These blokes have been mentioned before. Mm. And Cyril Bingham White, who was the chief of the general staff of the Parliament of Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the staff officer to General White, who was Francis Thornthwaite, and the private secretary to Mr. Fairbain, who was Richard Elford, plus some crew. Mm-hmm. So essentially, key inner circle cabinet members of the Menzies yeah. government at that time. They were being flown to, from Melbourne to Canberra for a cabinet meeting, so a mm. pretty important thing. Um, the control tower on the day, according to ABC, even commented on the pilot's skill with this new bomber that they were flying. Mm. So they were flying a RAF Lockhead Hudson 2 bomber, which... I don't know anything about my about planes, but my dad would be like, oh, yeah, mm. blah, 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 blah. So anyway, I did watch planes, Top Gun yesterday, but go. that also oh, does not help me. <laughs> that counts. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm. the, actually, it's the Brisbane Air Show as we speak. Oh. Timing. Anyway, hopefully no crashes hopefully, there. Hopefully someone flies over. We can hear it. <laughs> yeah, that would be good. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it is actually out. Like near Toowoomba, but anyway, yeah, of course that's it is. Mm. Boring information. Um, <laughs> the, the aircraft, so it was an A sixteen ninety seven, whatever that means, Hudson bomber, had been in service with the RAAF since the twentieth of June, so it was pretty new. It was a couple of months old, and had been operated by the number two squadron of the RAAF. So they're in this new plane and they're approaching Canberra, and witnesses on the ground see the bomber circle in the air, Mm. bank steeply, drop one wing, so they're tilting to the side, and then, quote, pancake into the ground. Ooh, so, like, kind of fall flat. Yeah, Yeah, so, like, en route Mm. to Canberra. Um, The Perth Daily News reported at the time, quote, the plane was seen by watchers at the Canberra aerodrome and the Air Force Station to circle the drone and then rise and head south. It disappeared behind a low tree-dotted hill. 
There was an explosion and a sheet of flame followed by a dense cloud of smoke. The Canberra Fire Brigade and ambulances from Canberra and Queen Bean across the border in New South Wales, as well as several Air Force tenders arrived soon afterwards and fire extinguishers were played on the blazing wreckage about Ah, uh, uh, sorry, after about half an hour, when the blaze had died down, it was seen that the entire undercarriage, wings and structural supports of the plane had been torn away and were a smouldering mass in which were the charred bodies of those on board. Oh, that's so grim. Yeah, it's pretty grim. So the mm. the sightings were like, it happened very quickly, essentially, mm. and then the wreckage was just... Yeah, it's an awful word to quote, but the quote is pancake. Um, mm. It's kind of smouldering flat. Yeah, that's not um, your description. That's an eyewitness description. Yeah. Yes, yes, I was not there. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah. So the plane came down in a paddock in Dundee um, at a grazing property owned by Duncan Cameron. And there's a few eyewitness accounts um, that the ABC gathered in 2018. So they kind of did a feature article Mm. around this and re-interviewed people who were there. So David Knott, who was nine at the time, said, you could hear a sort of crackling noise. It was a terrible accident, terrible accident. Um, And then... He also goes on to say, I could see the smoke coming over the hill. I could see the flames. I couldn't see any aeroplane or anything like that. I stopped and looked down and here was a river of molten aluminium running down the hill. You could see it running. It had ripples and I suddenly felt sick, physically sick. Yeah. Yeah. So it's pretty intense, like plane, then Mm. no plane. After the crash, there was an inquiry. So... The court of inquiry into the accident found that it was most likely due to the aircraft stalling on its landing approach. Mm. So that's why it potentially like dipped and came back up and then tilted and flattened. Um, And so they had to try and recover control, but they lost control. Um, the The aircraft crashed with considerable force. So everyone died pretty much instantly. So it's Mm. horrific, but at least we know it was very quick. Yeah. Um, and its proximity to the aerodrome and the uh, Royal Air Force Base enabled crews to get there immediately. Mm. So at least there's witness accounts of kind of the immediate aftermath and they knew mm. that no one suffered. So the people on board, I mentioned some of them earlier, but yes, um, inner circle cabinet ministers and... Obviously, the, the crash itself is really horrific and significant, but the aftermath of the crash was actually really significant in a political way as well. Mm. So like I said, Jeffrey Austin Street, who was the Minister for Army and Repatriation, he was on board. Um, he was a World War I veteran. He'd been awarded the Military Cross, as among a few other things. Um, he had been the Minister for Defence in... 1938 and then when the war kicked off they elevated that to army uh james valentine fairbain who was the minister for air and civil aviation he was an accomplished aviator himself um and he Mm. had served in the royal flying corps during world war one and had been elected to parliament in 1933 so a lot of these people served in world war one and that would would have been part of their um electoral campaign Mm. later um, which is why they also had these portfolios as well. Mm. 
Sir, Sir Henry Summer Gullet, who you remembered, who was the vice mm. president of the Executive Council and minister in charge of scientific and industrial research. Uh, he was actually a journalist until he enlisted in the war, mm. First War, uh, First World War in 1916. Um and he was Australia's official war correspondent for the AIF in Palestine in 1918 and was elected to parliament in 1925 and had a series of portfolios. He actually has done a bunch of things um, up until this time. General Sir Cyril Brudenell Bingham White is his full name. Amazing. He was the chief of staff. Um, he also had a background in the Australian forces in South Africa. Uh, he worked as chief of staff to multiple people um, and returned to the army as chief of general staff in 1940. So, yeah, he, yes. Busy. Again, busy person. And Lieutenant Colonel Francis Thornthwaite, who was a staff officer to General White, um, was also an officer in the Australian army from 1910. He had also won several awards. Um, yeah, and then on top of that were the crew. So um, Flight Lieutenant Richard Hitchcock, Pilot Officer Richard Frederick, um, Corporal John Frederick Palmer, and Aircraftman Charles Joseph Crosdale, and then the Private Secretary to Mr. Fairbain, Richard Edwin Elford. I know there's a lot of names, but I felt important to yeah, listen to everyone. All- Mm. Yeah, and they were all very accomplished people as well. So it was really significant at the time. So, Mr. Menzies, the Prime Minister, in this period is already struggling to hold on to his leadership. There's a divided Mm. coalition. So this is when a lot of the tensions around, like, national and liberal and all of those things, well, country party and all of those things are happening. Um, And the country is at war and then he loses some of his closest friends and allies in his government all in Mm. one go, um, completely unprepared. So on the 14th of August, so literally the next day, he had to reshuffle his ministry and fill their positions because they're at war. There's no Mm. time to, you know, have a week off and just kind of mourn. It's like we have to keep going. Mm. So he redistributes the vacant portfolios to a series of people. Um, And then October 28, um, which is, so there's an election, sorry. So Mm. there's an election between August and October. And then 28th of October, his government returns following an election in September. And he has to like reshuffle the cabinet Mm. again. And it wasn't like they won the election, but not by a lot. Um, it was, I don't think it was hung, but it was close to being mm. a hung parliament. And within that reshuffle, uh, Harold Holt, who had resigned as Minister for Supply and Development at the beginning of World War II to join the army, he's called back and recalled to join as Minister for Labour and National Service. And that's where you've mm. heard those names before. Yes. Because it's this accident that happens that causes Robert Menzies to recall Harold Holt um, Mm. from the army and puts him in a significant portfolio, which arguably then leads to Harold Holt becoming prime minister later on. Mm. Yeah. Um, But then in August 1941, the next year, 
after just ongoing tension and lack of support for the Menzies government, Robert Menzies resigns um, and Fadden replaces him as prime minister until October when there is a vote of no confidence in the parliament. So that's when... Oh, no. Yeah, so a leadership Mm. spill is when it happens internally within the party and a vote Mm. of no confidence is when the parliament, you know, as a whole... Mm. vote on not being confident Mm. in the party and you can change leader and change party within that and Mm. so that brought in a Labour government um, and Prime Minister John Curtin Mm. yeah so there's a lot of shuffling around and drama that happens immediately after this crash and then the following year as well Um, yeah and Menzies resigns nearly a year to the date after the crash so it significantly mm. impacted him on a personal level, but also his career. So no one knows exactly what happened with the crash. Um, like they said, they think it might have been just losing control because of a like a dropout in control. Mm. But there are a couple of theories. Um, one is a little bit bold. I'm just Mm going to say that up front. I'm not endorsing the theory. I'm simply Mm -hmm. sharing it. So this is from the ABC. Um, There's this bloke called Andrew Tink, and he was interviewed in 2018. And he wrote a book about the air disaster. And in that book, he raises a series of questions. Um, Mm -hmm. The most significant one is about... (laughs) who actually was flying the plane because so many of them were qualified to fly planes, like more Mm. men in that plane could fly planes than not. Mm. And he believes that it wasn't actually the pilot. It might've been James Fairbain, who was the minister for air and civil aviation Mm. and um, flew for the army. Mm. Yeah. So he has this theory that he took control of the plane And uh, during Andrew's research, he came across a letter that had been kind of buried since 1940. And for him, he's like, this is the linchpin. This is the strongest Mm. evidence that points to a possible motive for Fairbain Mm -hmm. to (laughs) control the plane. Sorry, I shouldn't be laughing. I'm laughing because Mm. it's like... It seems, yeah. You know, we're talking... 80 years later, Mm. (laughs) this guy's like, I have a letter. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Here we go. Um, So he has a letter from the headmaster of an Adelaide trade school. And in this letter, it kind of outlines the minister's interest in the Hudson, so in the plane. Mm. And it says, Hudson's have a rather nasty stalling characteristic, the combined effect of throttling back and dropping the flaps preparatory to landing can land you in a whole heap of bother. They are very sensitive at this stage to varying air pressures, and from what I've been told, a pilot coming into land can find himself suddenly and without warning in a machine that is no longer airborne, heading straight for the ground. I will be using a Hudson for my departmental traveling, and on every possible occasion, I'll practice landing. So this is from... Mm. Mr. Fairbain to this trade school. So he's literally saying, I will practice landings and find out more about this stalling trick. 
Personally, I think it is only a matter of handling your throttles wisely. So because he said at every opportunity, I will, Mm. you know, that he thinks that it is potentially this guy, this writer thinks it's potentially possible that Fairbane jumped in and Mm. was like, I'm going to test this theory. Uh, And then obviously tested it and it didn't work out. So this letter supposedly um, was sent about a week and a half before the accident, but it was never brought forward for any kind of inquiry because it was just kind of shelved and hidden Mm. for years and years and years until about a decade ago. Uh, Mr. Fairbain's granddaughter, however, Mary Brown, has come out in response to say, look, (laughs) I don't know if this is true. So she said, my grandfather was the last person to board that plane that morning. They were, I don't know how she knows that, but apparently she knows that. Mm. They were heading to Canberra for a very important meeting. I can't imagine that he would have used that moment to say, buddy, I want to have a go at this. There are a lot of people on board, friends, colleagues. Um, She said that, you know, passing the blame on and still trying to playing a blame game is Mm. probably not the best approach. Yeah, it's not helpful. So long. Mm. And she said it's important to honour the victims as they were serving their country at a time of war. And quote, they were all sons, they were all husbands and fathers, and we need to honor and respect them in a dutiful way. We will never know, and I don't believe it achieves anything by pointing fingers. It didn't achieve anything a long time ago, and it doesn't achieve anything now. Yeah, I mean, for me, all it, the letter shows is it's like, oh, there's a known fault in this plane. Yeah. And even if like all, all of them were qualified to fly it, so like it doesn't really matter, it could have been any one of them. And it yeah, would have had the anything, same result, you know? If anything, it proves that the plane was known. The plane is the problem. Like, to be dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> at landing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, and that the person who at a, you know, government level should look into that was actually yeah. planning to look into it. Yeah. 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 He was probably just doing he was, his job. Yeah. Doing it well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's the story of the Canberra air disaster. So they never really quite figured it out. But the most likely thing is that, yeah, the plane dropped out. Mm. Um, the secondary spooky idea is that someone took over and tested to see if the plane would drop out, and then it did. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it had a really significant knock-on effect to the parliament. You know, the fact that Menzies is a very, very prolific prime minister in Australia Mm. like he's one of the most well-known prime ministers that has served in Australia and this crash led partially not fully but partially led to his downfall um, which then had a knock-on effect to Curtin coming in as Labour and then Holt coming in after that and then Mm. Holt walks into the ocean one day and then he goes missing and then so it's really a turbulent time yeah Um, yeah during war as well. So really mm. interesting story. There is a uh, memorial in where the where the crash was um, mm. that, ba- you know, just kind of commemorates the people who lost their lives. It's, yeah, still there. But, yeah, that's that's the story. Mm. Yeah, and we, wow. will ne- we will never know what truly happened. Mm. Or, yeah, <laughs> we can we could be pretty confident. Yeah. <laughs> the, plane, the plane was... Dodgy. Yep. And it went down. Yep. My sources for this episode were the Australian Broadcasting 
Corporation? Corporation. It is corporation. (laughs) It's like, I'm going to start that again. (laughs) My sources for this episode are the ABC, (laughs) Wikipedia, National Archive of Australia, and monumentaustralia.org. I've used that before, Monument Mm. Australia. It's it's like there's a big list of – because it's when I was doing – um, what's his name? Mekong Tart. There's because oh, there's yes. a like a um, bust yeah. in Ashfield, and you look it up, and Monument Australia will tell you information about any monument. It's a pretty fascinating little website. They're not for mm. profit. Um, yeah, just run mm. by volunteers, I think. So th- yeah. shout out to Monument. Mm. Um, you know, for documenting. Yeah, they love a plaque. They love a statue. Yeah. Problematic and non-problematic, you know. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you want to know more about politics in that time, you should listen to our Harold Holt episode. It's quite a doozy, that episode, because mm. everyone knows Holty for walking into the ocean, but yeah. he actually, all of the stuff that led up to that day is also, like, equally wild. Um, yeah, this, that was really interesting. Yeah, this features as a very brief plot point in his wild mm. journey. So I really suggest mm. listening to that episode if you want a, you know, a cinematic universe crossover episode. Ah, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you can follow us on Instagram at Australianorama. Tell your friends to have a listen. Um, next episode will be in a fortnight and it's my turn. And I'm going to tell you about the white Australia policy. It's a pretty grim part of our history, but it's also very interesting. Um, So strap in for that. Bye-bye.